So we are continuing our sermon series to the New Testament book of Ephesians this morning. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This will be the, the first of, of multiple sermons on this opening section of Ephesians 2. And this, this opening section um, from verse 1 all the way to verse 10 is um, one of my favorite sections in all of the Bible. If if you've joined CEPC in the last four, five, six years, then you may remember um, this being part of our Meet CEPC weekend. Normally it's on Saturday morning. We have a, uh, a Bible study, almost like a Sunday school class together, and, and we would go through Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And, and the reason why is because I want to make certain that you know, everyone who is going to, to join this church, who's going to stand in front of the congregation and and, uh, and affirm the five membership vows uh, is, in fact, a, a follower of Jesus, that they understand the gospel. And, and, you know, this very few other passages spell out salvation by grace alone through faith alone, like Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. You know, one commentator described this opening passage of Ephesians 2 as one of the clearest, most expressive, and most loved descriptions of salvation in the New Testament. And I have to say, I agree. See, here in Ephesians 2, Paul paints a, a, a vivid contrast between what we all were by nature and what we all can become by God's grace. It's a very vivid contrast. The contrast goes from the, the, the darkest depths of our sin, the darkest depths of our sin, to, to the highest mountaintop peak of God's grace, and it makes this movement, this contrast, in just a few verses. In just a few verses, we go from, from the depths to the heights. And so this, this is a bit of a warning, okay, before we jump into the text, is that we begin by going down to the depths. And so you're going to experience that, okay, and so we're all prepared, so, so no, no one run for the door, Okay, once we begin to, to, to make our way down in the depths. But there's a big contrast from the depths to the heights. Now, just by, by way of illustration, do you know that the, uh, the lowest elevation in the continental United States is less than 88 miles from the highest point of elevation? The lowest point and the highest point only separated by 88 miles. And both are in California. The lowest point is the Badwater Basin in Death Valley National Park. It's at negative, negative 282 feet elevation. The highest point is the peak of Mount Whitney at 14,494 feet of elevation. And they're only 88 miles, a little bit less than that apart. So that's an elevation change of nearly 15,000 feet in less than 90 miles. It's a pretty dramatic change if you went from the lowest point to the, to the highest point. In our passage today, we're going to experience a dramatic change, a dramatic contrast between the depths of the death valley of our sin to the heights of the mountaintop peak of God's grace, really in just a few verses. Really, it just takes four verses. Now, the, the first three verses, the, the depths will feel like Death Valley, but, but God's amazing grace is amazing because of, of, of what we see in the first three verses. God's grace is amazing because of what we're saved from. So once again, don't, 
Don't walk out until the end, okay? Don't leave early. I want you to listen, and I want you to look for the contrast between what we all were by nature and what we become by God's grace. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. I read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true. It is given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at these, these five verses under two headings. And each heading is only two words. And these two word phrases come from our text, and they give us the outline of what Paul's communicating here. The first heading is, you were. You were. The second is, but God. You were, but God. And and we're going to spend most of our time, you were. And you were is going to feel like going down to the depths of Death Valley. It's going to feel that way. But we need to be reminded of that. That's what Paul's telling us. And then we're going to begin to ascend to the heights by looking at but God. So you were but God. So first, let's look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. See, you were. Paul's reminding the Ephesian Christians of who they once were. Do you see that? This is who you once were. And just in case you weren't with us or you've forgotten about what we covered a couple of weeks ago, the Ephesian church is, is doing well. It's doing well. It's a relatively healthy church. If you remember back in Ephesians 1, Paul says that he he, he is giving unceasing thanksgiving for them and his prayers for them because he's heard the good reports about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's heard the reports about their love for all the saints, that they love Jesus, they love one another, they're doing well, but yet do you see what Paul says to them? He says, you were... He reminds them of who they once were. Reminds them, he reminds us, dear Christians, of who all of us once were before God saved us by his grace. Now you notice that, you're going to notice that Paul uses the pronoun you in verses 1 and 2, but then he seamlessly transitions to we and us in verse 3, 4, and 5. The, the, the point being is that Paul's not picking on the Ephesians. Okay, the Ephesians weren't particularly bad. They're just like us. They're just like Paul. Just like me, just like you, just like us. See, Paul's reminding all followers of Jesus who read Ephesians 2 of who we all once were. Who we all once were before God saved us by his grace. What we see looking at verse 1 is that our lives were marked by trespasses and sins. Do you see that? Trespasses and sins. 
Now, on the one hand, these words, trespasses or transgressions, depending upon the translation, trespasses and sins, in one way, they're synonyms. Okay, Paul's talking about our, our sin, our unrighteousness. However, we should also pay attention um, to, to the different words that Paul uses. He, he intentionally chooses these two words. And theologian John Stott puts it this way, these two words, trespasses and sins, seem to have been carefully chosen to give a comprehensive account of human evil, a comprehensive account of sin, of what sin is, of what our sin is. So let's think about them. First, trespass. That word translated trespass indicates deviating from the right course, a, a false step that crosses a known boundary, or, or breaking a, a given command. Put simply, it's doing something bad that we know is bad. God says, you shall not, but we have. Then there's that word sin. That word sin means to, to miss the mark or to, to fail to measure up to, to the standard. You, you may know it was an archery term used to describe missing the target, missing the, the bullseye. In other words, it's not doing something good that we know we ought to do. That God says, you shall, but we have not. So by intentionally using these two words, Paul is labeling us both trespassers or rebels and sinners or failures. Rebels and failures, trespassers and sinners who, who are guilty of sins of commission, so active sins, doing bad things that we know are bad or wrong, and sins of omission, more passive sins, failing to do the good that God's word calls us to do. When we understand this, I mean, this gives us a more comprehensive understanding of what sin is, of what your sin is, what my sin is. Now, our, our shorter catechism is super helpful here, okay? If you're not familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I just I can't recommend it to you enough. Use it. You know, parents of, of uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, they're learning a lot about this. You can pick it up and learn about it too. It's incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful. Question 14 in the Shorter Catechism asks, what is sin? You think about it. That's, that's a short, simple question. Then, okay, but how do you answer that? How do you answer that in a, in a concise and yet accurate, biblically faithful way? How do you answer that question, what is sin? Well, here's the Shorter Catechism's answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's a short, concise summary of all that I've just said. That sin is any want of conformity unto the law of God. It's, it's not doing the good that I should do. It's, it's the sin of missing the mark. Sin is also, or a transgression of the law of God. It's a trespass, crossing a known boundary, breaking a given command. It's doing the wrong things that I know that I should not do. And so what Paul says is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Your lives were marked by trespasses and sins. And so do you realize what he's saying? One of the things is that he's letting us know that the, the Ephesian church was more similar to our church than not. It was comprised of sinners who were saved by Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 
And he's reminding them of who they once were. Who we once were. And then he goes on and he says, before Christ saved you, your life was marked by three things. I'm going to say three words. He's going, to, he's going to spell out, we were dead, we were slaves, and that we were condemned. And so look, look with me. First, he says that we were dead. Look again at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Okay, now at this point, uh, I know you know the drill. I listened to Patrick's sermon last week, so let's get this out of the way. What do you think that Greek word translated dead means? Dead, that's right. You guys are all Greek scholars. It's incredible. You know, whenever you move, all the new people are going, I don't understand what just happened, okay? Um, Whenever I move the cursor of my Bible software, my Bible language software, over that word translated dead, I'm given one option. It's the word dead. It doesn't mean in danger of death. It means dead. It doesn't mean sick or wounded, or on one's deathbed, it means dead. It doesn't mean, to quote Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, only mostly dead. Okay, it means dead. It means we all once lived in Death Valley. But before God saved us and made us spiritually alive together with Christ, we were spiritually dead. Our, our eyes blinked, our hearts beat, you know, we, we walked around. Many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us seemed to be well-adjusted. We were seen to be, you know, reasonably well-behaved. We, most of us had nice manners. But spiritually, we, we were the walking dead. This is how we all entered this world because of the sin of our first parents, We've got to understand this. You know, the, the, actual, the actual sins that we commit are not what make us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because of our sin nature, which we were born with, which we inherited from our first parents. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, puts this. The language is a little tricky, but I'll explain it. They, Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin in the garden was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, that's us, all of their posterity, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. That our actual transgressions reveal the truth about our sin natures. That we sin because we're sinners. Or to put this language in, you know, an easier language for, for people like me to understand, Ian Hamilton says, God promised Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. Back in Genesis 2, verse 17, Adam sinned and spiritually died in his relationship with God, but Adam was more than an individual. He was more than a mere individual. He was a divinely appointed covenant head. 
In Adam, we all died spiritually, and our relationship with God was broken. Now, later, we're going to talk about Christ, the the second Adam, and how we were made alive together with him. Okay, but here, we're talking about the first Adam. In Adam, we all died spiritually, and our relationship with God was broken. The fact is that we sin because we are sinners. It is not our sinning that makes us sinners. Our sinning merely accentuates and makes visible our fallen state in Adam. It's not merely our actual sins that make us sinners. Our inherited nature is sinful, that we sin because we were born sinners. So put another way, apart from God's saving grace in Jesus Christ, not one of us was well. Apart from God's saving grace in Christ, not one of us was merely sick. Rather, we were all spiritually dead. We've got to understand this. See, it's it's not that we have simply taken a wrong turn. It's not that we have simply made a mistake. See, it's not that we simply need a little guidance to get us back on track, to to get us back on the right path. The, The Bible says that we were dead. See, it's not merely that we were a little bit confused, that we were a little bit misguided. It's not merely that we lacked some critical piece of information, and then if we were to gain that information, then we would be able to figure things out. No, we we were dead. And whenever we understand this about who we all once were, then it makes sense of our life before Christ saved us. I mean, dear Christian, do you remember what your life was like before Christ saved you? Listen to how David Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it. The man who is not a Christian finds the Bible very boring. In expositions of the Bible, very boring. He does not find films boring. He does not find newspapers boring. He does not find novels boring. Or young people, he doesn't find the internet boring. But he finds these things boring. He does not enjoy conversations about the soul and about life and death and heaven and God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot help it, but he just sees nothing in it, and he's not interested. The position is perfectly simple. These other things are spiritual. They are God's thing, and that kind of man sees nothing in them. Why? Because he's dead and has no spiritual life. I mean, do you remember being there? Do you remember being there? I do. That's the the description of the first 18 years of my life. And what Paul says is that this is where we all once were before God saved us by his grace. That we were spiritually unresponsive. We were spiritually flatlined. Spiritually dead. Paul says no other analogy will do. It's not that we needed some medicine. We needed resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that's where the the heights of God's grace are going in in this passage. It's taking us to where, but God made us alive together with Christ Jesus, that we needed resurrection. Not merely some guidance, not merely some medicine. Not merely doctor's orders, not merely a regimen to follow, 
Not merely things that we could do to save ourselves. God had to do it. And so first, we were dead. We were the walking dead, living in Death Valley. Second, what Paul says, is that we were slaves. He says we were slaves. That's hard language. This is hard language. We're going down to the depths. Hard language. He says we were slaves to the world. We were slaves to the devil. And we were slaves to our own sinful hearts. And so look what Paul says. Slaves to the world. Look at the beginning of verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. So in which you once walked, or the way you once lived. The way you once lived in your state of spiritual death. And if you look closely at the beginning of verse 2, you see that the the spiritually dead operate by following the course of this world. Now, friends, personally, I think... I don't think there's anything easier for me to prove than that non-Christians are enslaved and controlled by the world. That is, before Christ saved us, we were all willing slaves to the societal value system with all of its preferences, priorities, and fads, which is ultimately hostile to Christ and his word. That we were willing slaves to the pop culture, to the media, to the, to the cultural groupthink of a society that has lost its moral compass. And we all felt the relentless peer pressure to conform to the course of this world. And our great problem, though, was not that we did not have the capacity to make choices. The problem was that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the world, and we had no desire for God or his word. As Pastor Ian Hamilton puts it, outside of Christ... We do not follow the course or ways God has set before us in his word. Rather, we follow the course of this fallen world. We follow its patterns of thinking, behavior, expectations. Our lives are dominated by a lifestyle that has an earthly horizon. That we can't see, we can't even imagine seeing beyond the here and the now. And the immediate self-gratification what we can get our hands around, fill our pockets with, fill our, fill our mouths with, what we can do with our bodies. By nature, we are more concerned to keep in step with the world around us than with the word of God. Simply put, before God saved us by his grace, the world set the agenda and the priorities for our lives, and we were just fine with that. We were just fine with that. Next, Paul says that we were also slaves of the devil. And so look at the second half of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the prince of the power of the air is a title for the devil. It's a title that Paul uses to communicate the unseen and yet very real and pervasive influence that the devil has in the lives of unbelievers. Now, paraphrasing Augustine, he said that a man is like a horse. And the ladies agree with that, I'm sure. But he says, a man is like a horse, and he can only have one rider at a time. Either the horse is ridden by God or is ridden by Satan. You see, Satan lays out the bait, and unbelievers willingly take it. I willingly took it. You willingly took it. That's who you all once were. That's who we all once were. 
dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul's point is that before God saved us by his grace, we were willingly persuaded by the devil's schemes and his lies. Put another way, we wanted his lies to be true so that we continue, we could continue pursuing our sinful path because we preferred the lies of the devil over the truth of God found in his word. In addition to the world and the devil, we were slaves to our flesh. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived, he's using that word we now, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That before God saved us by his grace, the, the outside powers and domineering influences of the world and the devil had an internal ally, namely our sinful hearts referred to here as the flesh. Right, the flesh doesn't refer to our skin, but to our fallen sinful nature. Our fallen sinful nature, which embraces our fleshly desires and our wicked thoughts, our lost, broken thoughts, enslaved to sin. These sinful desires of the flesh have one purpose, just immediate self-gratification. And whenever you and I were enslaved to the flesh, before God saved us by his grace, we could not see beyond the horizon of this world. Right? We couldn't see, we couldn't fathom, we couldn't imagine living for anything beyond the horizon of this world and, and what we can see and taste and touch and, and hoard up for ourselves. But in our trespasses and sins, we were all once dead. And we were all once slaves. That's not who we are anymore, and that's where Paul's going in the book of Ephesians. So stay with me in the, in the chapters to come. This is who we all once were. We were dead, and we were slaves. And then third, he says that we were condemned. And so look at the end of verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And I, I know right then, I know that word wrath. Oh, that, that, that's a shocking word. That's a word we don't like. It's a word we don't use. And I'll be honest with you, I, I wish that word was not there. I, I, don't, I don't like to preach this. I'm excited about eventually getting to verses 4 and 5. I don't like to preach this. But I would not be a faithful pastor if I simply skipped over this. You see, Paul's point here is that we are all sinners. Every one of us in this room, we are all sinners. The difference is that some of us are sinners who have been saved by Jesus. And the ones who have not yet been saved by Jesus are still currently, right now, objects of God's wrath. And not because God is cruel, but because God is good. You see, God's wrath is not an imperfection in his character. He doesn't have flaws. God's wrath is a byproduct of his perfect holiness. Listen to how John Stott describes God's wrath. It is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it. And his resolve instead to condemn it. Or listen to, to pastor theologian Sinclair Ferguson. Wrath is the settled hostility of God's holy will towards everything that rebels against him. God does not fly off the handle as we do in a fit of rage. No, the terrible element in God's wrath is 
that besides being perfectly controlled, it is totally concentrated, absolutely just, completely holy. Do you understand that the alternative to our holy God displaying wrath towards sin would be for God to turn a blind eye and to ignore sin and wickedness? Think about that. Would that be an improvement in God's character? If God winked at all of the evil and the wickedness and the sin in the world, if he just swept it under the rug, ignored it, turned a blind eye to it, looked at the evil, the sin, the wickedness, all of the injustice, and said, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Let's just move on. I think we can all agree that ignoring and intentionally overlooking evil will be an imperfection in God's character, and that's absolutely impossible. God is perfect. God is holy. Now, none of this means that non-Christians are as bad as they can be. Non-Christians aren't as bad as they could be. As one commentator put it, there's always room for deprovement. I could have been a lot worse. You could have been a lot worse. But here's the point. Paul is trying to remove any ounce, uh, any opportunity for someone to try to cling to their morality as a way to, to bargain with God, to cling to their morality as a way of saying, well, God, I wasn't that bad. Okay, God, I wasn't perfect. No one's perfect. God, I was at least better than average. You see, I, you've heard me say this many times, but there is this great lie, this great myth of this cosmic moral accounting system that works like this. I mean, so many people try to approach the Bible this way, but the Bible nowhere teaches this. This is not Christianity, but people will try to cling to this lie, this myth, that our good deeds are credits to our account. The nice things, the sweet things, the, the selfless ways we serve are credits to our account, but our sins and our selfishness and, and the wrong things that we do are debits from our account. And the, and the myth works this way. As long as you finish life in the black, you're okay. As long as your good outweighs your bad, you're okay. As long as you're not as bad as you could have been, you're okay. As long as you're better than average. But don't you see, the Bible nowhere teaches this. The Bible nowhere says, okay, as long as you compare favorably to one another, you're okay. Well, the Bible says that we have a perfect and holy God. And his standard is righteousness. And our best efforts fall well short of that. Not one of us has the righteousness in and of ourselves that we need. That's why this moral accounting system doesn't work. God's holy. And his holiness demands perfection. This is why we need Christ. Why you must trust in him. We need his righteousness imputed to us. Now, I know it's possible for you to hear all of this and you say, well, okay, Richard, I wasn't that bad or I'm not that bad. But what Paul says is you were. What God's word says is you were. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, what God's word says is you are. This is who you are. It's who I was. 
James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Do you realize what that means? That it, it's the wrong way of viewing the Bible to see the various laws and commands as individual laws and commands that perhaps you can just pile up like a, like a bunch of rocks. And, and you can just throw a few away and nobody's going to notice it's still a pile of rocks. They're still there. Most of them are there. And that's what matters, most of them. No, what, what James says, what God's word says, is that God's law is a unified whole. That whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That, that God's law is not like a, like a stack of rocks, rather it's like your windshield. And as soon as one of those I-10 rocks hits your windshield and it cracks, um, and if you're new to town, that's going to happen. But as soon as that happens, okay, you don't say, well, okay, well, part of my windshield is cracked. No, the whole windshield's cracked. That's the way God's law, that's the way his commands work. So I know this is a hard teaching. I know it is. I warned you, okay, you've done well not leaving, that's good. But here is your condition if you're not a Christian today according to God's word. You are spiritually dead, not merely sick. And you are incapable of rescuing yourself. That you are enslaved to the world, the devil, and your own sinful heart. And that you stand condemned before a perfect and holy God. Now, you can hear all of that, and, and you can call me a liar, but if you've been paying attention, then you know that you're not really, you have to be honest, you're not really calling me a liar, you're calling God a liar. Or you, you can hear this, and you can get frustrated at me, and you can say, I'm too direct, and many people do, you can say that, with all of this sin, slavery, condemnation, wrath language, and you would not be the first person to say that, but if you've been paying attention, then you know that your frustration is not with me. But it's with God. This is his language. Or you can hear all of this. And you can say something like this. Richard, this is indeed a hard teaching. And it comes as a bit of a shock. But I am thankful for the truth of God's word. I see this is my true spiritual condition. And what I want to know, what can I do? Is there any hope for me? And that's what it's meant to do. As the Puritan Thomas Watson put it, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, this is getting at a profound truth of Christianity. Until we understand the depth of our problem, we will not be able to delight in the solution. That grace is truly amazing because of what we are saved from. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet, and he is sweet. He is the sweet Savior we need. You see, there is hope for sinners, for all sinners, every sinner who will turn to Christ in faith. There was hope for me. There's hope for you. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. And that brings us to this second heading, these next two words, massive words, but God. Now look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Now, we don't have time at the end of this sermon to, to, do all, to dig out of all that we can or need to out of verses 4 and 5, so rest assured we're coming right back to them next Sunday. But I don't want you to miss these two words, but God. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, These two words, but God, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention, It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and astonishing work of God. So look again at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian said that if you want to understand reformed theology and i would add if you want to understand the bible if you want to understand christianity then you should read these two verses over and over again at least a thousand times i want you to look at them do do you see that the grace that brings resurrection life to sinners like us who were dead in our trespasses and sins it comes to us even when we are dead in our trespasses do you see that That God made us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. When we were flatlined. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were lost. This highlights that our salvation is a sovereign act of God's mercy. As Paul will later say in Ephesians 2, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works, not a result of working and manipulating this cosmic moral accounting system and having your good outweigh your bad. See, dear Christian, your salvation is not a result of your works. Your salvation, my salvation, our salvation is the result of Christ Jesus' work of redemption on our behalf. See, it's not because you decided that you were going to clean your life up. You're not a Christian because you decided to turn over a new leaf. Because you decided you're going to get serious about your faith. Because you decided you're going to start coming to church. All of those are good things, and, and I'm glad you did them. You ought to do those things. But none of those things save us. Christ saves us. It's because he took on flesh and dwelt among us that first Christmas. And that he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous, obedient life, the life that we've all failed to live. And it's because he went on to do more than that. He went to Calvary's cross to die the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death in our place, on our behalf, to pay the full penalty that our sins deserve. You see, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Therefore, to save us from our sins, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, down to the very last drop on the cross for sinners like us. And praise God, there's even more. God raised Christ from the dead. And now there is resurrection power for all who have been made alive together with Christ. Resurrection power for all who trust in Christ. That we are new creations with new hearts. We've experienced new birth in Christ. We have new resurrection power to walk, to live in newness of life. Listen to how James Boyce describes this new spiritual life. When God breathes new spiritual life into us in the work known as regeneration, we become something we were not before. We have new life. That life is responsive to the one who gave it. 
Before this, the Bible meant nothing to us when we read it or it was read in our hearing. Now the Bible is intensely alive and interesting. We hear the voice of God in it. Before this, we had no interest in God's people. Now they are our very best friends. We love their company and cannot seem to get enough of it. Before this, coming to church was boring. Now we are alive to God's presence in the service. Our worship times are the very best times of the week. What has made the difference? God has changed us. We have become alive to him. We are new creatures. So do, do you know... Do you know of this new spiritual life? Have you experienced it? Have you tasted of it? Do you want it? If you want it, come and get it. Trust in Christ. You see, but God, there is hope in those two words. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. But God made us alive together with Christ. We were enslaved to the world, the devil, and our own sinful hearts, but God. We stood condemned by nature, children of wrath, but God made us children of his, adopted us into his family. But God brought you and me from death to life in Christ. But God brought you and me from slavery to freedom in Christ. But God saved you and me from his wrath by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. See, but God saves and rescues us from the, the depths of Death Valley to the heights of his grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. And don't miss this, dear Christian. Do you see from these verses why God saved you? Why did God save you? Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God saved you because of his mercy and his grace and his love. His love. Do you see the redundancy, hear the redundancy in verse 4? Because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, why, why did God save you whenever you were dead, enslaved, and condemned in your trespasses and sins? Well, he loved you with his love. He loved you with his love, and that's why he made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so, dear Christian, don't miss this. Let this move you to humility. Let this move you to worship. Realize that this same gospel, this same Christ, is the one who we must proclaim and share and hold out and live out in front of our friends and our neighbors. And now, if, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, then don't miss this either. On the one hand, you cannot save yourself. You can't. Your best efforts will never be good enough. You cannot clean your own life up. And yet, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you don't have to. Trust in Christ. He will give you a new heart. He will give you new birth. He will, he, your life will begin to bear fruit. He will begin to transform you from the inside out. On the one hand, you can't save yourself. On the other hand, know that you are not a lost cause. You're not too far gone. There's no one in this room or any other room who's too far gone. No one is too far gone for but God. 
See, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to live, to die, to rise from the grave, to save sinners. Even the worst of sinners, even sinners like me and like you who will turn to Christ in faith. And so if you're here today and you want to be saved, but your sinful past or your sinful present is holding you back, then realize you would not be the least bit moved or stirred or drawn to Christ unless God were at work in your heart. See, today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ. Cry out to God in prayer. Acknowledge your sin before him. Confess your need of a Savior. Beg and plead with God to to wash you clean from your sin in Christ's blood. Beg and plead for him to to clothe you in Christ's righteousness, to, to forgive you of your sin, to adopt you into his family, and he will. He will. He really will. He will put his Holy Spirit within you. He'll make you a new creation. He'll give you a new heart. He'll transform you from the inside out. You cannot do it yourself. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in a room this size, there's no doubt that, that, that some, many, of, many are believers, but, but some are not. Lord, please impress these truths upon our hearts, found in your word, by your spirit. May we read verses four and five a thousand times, and whether we're been a Christian for a long time or we we see our need of a savior we would read verses 4 and 5 over and over and over again please father clarify for us make it very clear very plain to us what it means to be saved by grace but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ask this in Jesus' name.